machen und welcome to the Commerce Talks Podcast Day 2 at the Seamless Conference in uh, Riyadh. We are talking about Mr. Draper, but you're not uh, actually called Mr. Draper. That's the name of your company. Tell us a bit more about that and yourself. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so a little bit about myself. I'm an ex-strategy consultant. Um, I did that for about five years in the US before moving to Dubai. And I joined one of the largest luxury retailers in the Middle East, Shalhoub Group. I worked with them for years. Ah, I've heard about them. Uh, yes, yes. They're quite big. Uh, I think now a store network of about uh, 600 stores, over a billion in revenue. So they're doing uh, luxury, makeup, private label, etc. Um, and then I decided to do my own thing um, and launched Mr. Draper in late 2017, 2018. Um, and Mr. Draper, actually, funny enough, comes from two different uh, two different things. The first being that Mr. was masculine and we were starting with men. So that made sense. And Draper in the English language means somebody that dresses somebody else. So ah, I didn't know that. Yes. So Mr. Draper, that's how it was created. And then later we found out um, there was a show called Mad Men and Don Draper is the main character and he's very yeah. well dressed, very well groomed. So it's a great brand association for us. Yeah. He's a very masculine uh, exactly. uh, actor there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, the business itself. So for the German listeners, uh, and we talked uh, talked about it like before the interview, it like reminds me of Outfittery, but many of our listeners uh, um, don't know the business model itself. Can you tell us a bit more? Sure. So um, what we're doing is really making guys look good without the hassles of shopping. Our service starts when a customer creates a profile on our websites, giving us data points about their style, budgets, colors, and sizes. Then we leverage a combination of a human stylist and an algorithm to create a box of outfits that's sent to their house to try on for three days. Uh, they can keep and pay for what they like and send back what they don't. Um, and what's happening really across the entire buying journey is we're collecting data both on the customer, the products, and then the feedback from the customer on the products. And we're leveraging that to personalize the shopping experience for the customer as he continues to use the service. Can you give us some uh, ballpark numbers about the business? How many customers, how many regions, how many boxes are you serving? Sure. So um, we launched in the UAE. Um, we went officially to market in 2017, 2018. 50,000 customers, 7,000 active, uh, multi-millions in revenue at this point. And now we're working to launch the same service in the UAE, uh, in KSA. And the UAE means you're covering then uh, mainly uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and some of the other uh, Emirates? Yeah, exactly. So Dubai, Abu Dhabi are our main markets. We also have uh, Sharjah, we have Ajman, and Ras Al Khaimah. And what do you think is the potential for this? If you're looking at like um, 100 standard male customers, uh, regardless if it's UAE, KSA, or Germany. So how many would be... What is like your aim? How many could you outfit? So if you're looking at the UAE, which is a population of about 10 million people, um, it's a relatively small market, to be fair. 10 million, um, 45% will be considered blue collar. Um, so our target market within a certain uh, salary bracket is about 400,000 men. If you look at Saudi, however, which is a much bigger market, 35 million population, You're looking at about 6 million men between the ages of 25 to 40 um, that are within the salary bracket that we would target. So it's a considerably larger market. But like from a from an outside perspective, and it's interesting like to, to be here in the region just to see it uh, with, with our own eyes, most of them are wearing the same uh, white dress. So 
how far developed is like the personal taste, uh, the, the need to be outfitted in a in, in something else, or is there like maybe there's like different uh, types in the white dress, or I think black ones too, um, uh, um, which would leverage your uh, data-based model? So I really love this question. And, you know, for the longest time, it was a really difficult question to answer until recently. So everybody was um, making the same assumptions. And it's a misconception. Um, the Saudi Fashion Council actually recently, as about a month ago, released a report about the fashion uh, market in Saudi. So if you look at men specifically, they're expected to be, the fashion market for them is expected to be about 25 billion by 2025. No, sorry, 3 billion by 2025 with 13% made up of this traditional thobe wear. So the Th rest- 30 or? 13. 13, only yeah, 13. Only 13%, which is a surprise, yeah, for everybody. Mm -hmm. The market is quite huge and all the largest brands in the world exist here. And as of right now, Saudi doesn't have a lot of tourism. So the market is buying up these brands. Nice, interesting. And uh, tell me a bit more like about the uh, customer process. I understand if I register on Mr. Draper, I maybe tell you my favorite brands, my size, my monthly budget, um, may fabric uh, preferences. I don't like cotton. I like cotton, whatever like this. Um, do I also have to upload and a photo from my favorite dress, uh, which is then processed by uh, your um, by your uh, data team or by the personal uh, stylist? So in terms of um, data, right, what we're collecting here, which is super important to highlight, is what's called zero-party data. It's a customer that's uh, it's a data that a customer is willing willingly giving to you about themselves. So it's very targeted. Um, in terms of imagery, the customer has the option to upload an image, but there's no technology as of yet that's analyzing the image and making any predictions. The technology, what's really looking at is a combination of um, the customer data, so his style profile, product data, so attributes for a specific product. When we consider a shirt like you're wearing, it's not, um, let's say, a black slim fit shirt from Tommy Hilfiger. It's a black, slim fit, 100% cotton shirt with a pattern inside the lapel um, that's size X, that has these types of buttons, that has this type of collar, that's short sleeve or long sleeve. So it's automatically tagged with attributes on a product SKU level that the algorithm is looking at. And then what's really happening is we're creating, and this is like a very common technique called collaborative filtering, where grouping customers and creating body doubles off of them. And then using a combination of collaborative filtering, positive and negative signals from that cohort of customer, we can predict what the customer is going to want to wear. So we group you into a cohort using collaborative filtering. And then we look at a body double of you, Alex. We see what he's purchased and returned and also what feedback he's given about certain products. And then we leverage that to predict what you're going to like. And from the first box you're sending out for to me as a customer, so how many pieces do I keep? How many send I back? So we send about six items per box and the customer on average right now is keeping two and a half. And how often... So I understand it's a subscription model or is it like is it, is it an optional subscription? Bingo, the, la the latter. So we give the customer the option to choose how often he wants to get the box. He can do it on demand or he can schedule boxes on a quarterly monthly or biannual basis and like if you look at the uh distribution of like the customer behavior so how often are they coming back to you every three months so every three months two and a half items uh they're gonna buy and this is items he would have bought at uh, brick and mortar retail usually 
So we work with, oh, so we do inventory in one of three ways. First, we're doing wholesale. Like you said, we're working with the distributors to buy the brands. Those obviously have high margins. The other option that we have is called consignment, where the brands are giving us the products. They're giving us six months with them. Whatever we sell on a monthly basis, basis we pay for. Whatever we don't sell at the end of six months, we can send back to them. This is great for working capital, not great for margins because we're only taking a small cut. And more recently, what we've been doing, using the data that we have, we're actually able to predict what items are going to sell the fastest, and we're producing them in the UAE and making them ourselves under our own brands. And was there also, um, when I remember like the German market about this kind of business model, there was a certain hype around it. And I don't remember actually the timing of the hype. It could, be, it could have been like 2016, 14, 17, 18. And there were like many companies trying to compete with the same model because obviously subscription as a business model became big there. It was the first time when subscription was uh, applied on hardware. Like hardware subscription was like the new uh, the new fantasy game for, for VCs. How was it when you started the business? We were way too early to the market. Now, if you're talking about AI, we were one of, you know, we've been doing AI before AI was cool. And this business model, we launched it at a time where e-commerce Basic e-commerce was getting picked up in the region. So in the very early days, it was very hard to raise money. We actually focused more on angels to raise money than we did VCs. And today, is your business model profitable or do you still need to raise money? Um, we're getting there. I think we're very close at this stage because of a combination of you know uh, driving down cost of acquisition and our private label brands. Um, but now we're more focused on growing the business across the GCC before we focus on profitability. What we often see with such kind of businesses is that yes, you're uh, you're trying to win new customers, like in certain markets, like entering now KSA uh, um, um, as a as a market. But um, it, I think it was the case at Motomoto and at Fittery that they tried to sell data also to um, fashion companies. And so, okay, you, you see, we have a very high return rate on this kind of product. So obviously, you need to look into like the fabric quality or how it's how it's how it's made, how it's cut. Uh, um, obviously, there's like a, a mistake in the product um, data which was not available to the manufacturers before, and therefore trying to move the business model away from retailing margin and moving it into a service kind of margin business. What is your experience here? So at this point, that's not something that we're doing. I know it's something that retailers want, but we're thinking about it from a different perspective. So to run this type of business model and to do it the way that we're doing it, there's no real technology that you can buy off the shelf to run this business model. So what we've been doing for the past four years is really building it from scratch. So that's a CRM, that's an inventory system that's built from scratch. That's a CDP and the algorithm, obviously. What we realized as we're speaking with our distributor partners and retailers is that we're able to predict demand um, and understand what type of products are more likely to work uh, with our customers. And in going through that process with them, they're seeing the technology that we have and seeing the value in that technology. So we think it's going to be an interesting opportunity for us to leverage the technology that we built to launch a B2B business to help other brands and retailers understand their customers and deliver a personalized shopping experience. So instead of just selling them encrypted data, we let them gather their own data about their own customers um, and leverage our technology to provide similar experiences, not necessarily doing a try-before-you-buy experience, but more of an understanding of your customer across channels through the te technology that we built. Mm. And the other, um, the other strategic initiative I saw at those companies was 
uh, instead of moving into the service business, was um, increasing the product margin by um, implementing um, their own brand uh, or like or how do you say it? They created their own brands, private labels. The, private labels, yeah, yeah. Outfitter, not just one, like two or three or four, and try to um, try to make a better margin. Most cases that didn't work out because the um, the over the, the production issues they have creating something uh, overstocks whatever actually created a, uh, a worse business compared to the standard retail business. But I think that was just economies of scale. It was too small, maybe too too early. Do you have a view here? So we're just getting started. Uh, we think there's going to be a massive opportunity to work with the KSA government who's looking to actually build manufacturing businesses in KSA and are subsidizing these types of businesses. So we think there's an opportunity there. Um, but we're more focused right now at this stage on our B2B side of the business and how we can help other brands and retailers personalize their shopping experience. We think private label is great for um, improving your margins. But to be honest, like I don't have insights because we haven't done it at scale yet. We're just getting started with that business. Hmm. And have you seen brands already failing in the market that had maybe their peak demand behind it? Like the um, in Germany, we have a uh, we have a, we have a famous brand called uh, Camp David or uh, Desigual was example a brand nobody's searching for anymore. Do you see it in your own demand where you have to say, okay, dear brand, it was a good time for two years, but. <laughs> Nobody wants you anymore. Are we talking about, are you referencing, are these guys direct-to-consumer brands? Yeah, no, they are not only direct-to-consumer. So they started as direct, they do some direct-to-consumer business, but obviously you see that they're, that are getting less and less shelf space in the, in the, in the, in the fashion stores and therefore dying. Or do you rather rely on mm, uh, brands that do have like an unlimited shelf life, I would say, the Hilfiger's, Hugo Boss, whatever, or would you rather go for, mm, fashion brands more that, niche brands yeah, niche yeah. brands or that might have a peak but maybe are not so sustainable from a demand perspective so the question is twofold i mean the customer is going to decide that what we do on our side to limit our risk is these brands that are quite niche and not as well known um, we like to work on a consignment basis to test out figure out from our data what's working and what isn't and if, if there's an opportunity for us to improve our margins um, then we go from consignment to wholesale um, but the customer is going to decide at the end of the day, and we have the data, uh, the data to make the decisions. Okay, so got it. Like, how many SKUs do you offer right now in your service? So right now we are at a stage where we're around ten thousand SKUs, and this this equals how many brands? Ooh, good question. Um, I think we're around eighteen to twenty brands right now. Eighteen to twenty. Okay, yeah. Because I thought it maybe like fifty brands. Or no, so. not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you focusing on like certain uh, certain items, maybe socks and underwear? No, but shirts and jackets, yes. Yeah. So right now, I want to take a step back. So if you look at our market in the Middle East, a few families own a lot of the brands. So for us uh, to optimize our margins, even, but even the European brands or like the experts, because it's uh, this kind of franchise model that is exactly, active in the region. So exactly. because they're not operating themselves, the Zara's here, for example, they sold the license to a family, exactly. which then is building the Zara Ex business. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the case for a lot of brands here. Ah. So for us to optimize our margins and not worry about shipping and customs, we buy from the distributors directly in the market. That's been our strategy so far. And not to try to order brands from outside, pay for shipping customers and bring them in. Yeah. So in, in that case, we're focused on more bigger brands because we work with one family. Let's say we're working with Shelhu. That's opening the door to 20, 25 brands if we want. 
Um, and more niche brands that we were mentioning earlier, again, we take on consignment, we test it out, we see what works and what doesn't, and then restructure the way we do inventory from there. Now, the second part of your question, you're uh, you're mentioning around, um, what was that? I don't remember, but I understand. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. The second no, second part was: Would you go for um, niche uh, niche items, socks, underwear, oh, right, yeah. or would you do you cover like everything a, a man would wear? So right now, yeah, we're focused on more smart, casual, casual wear. Um, not necessarily like suits, but more blazers, jackets, uh, t-shirts, polos, chinos, formal pants, etc. But in the future, we'd want to do a basic subscription. So this is like your undershirts, your socks, your underwear that you can get on a, let's say, quarterly basis um, use, uh, using Mr. Draper. When we discuss the business model with um, traditional retailers and uh, in the European market, usually the feedback was, you know, that's not a standalone business model. That's a function of a retailer. So a retailer who all it's all. So that's like, I don't want to argue if this is right or wrong. I will give you this question. But like the retail perspective was, you know, they have the same stuff we have in our shelves. They're serving uh, a fraction of, fraction of our customers, but an interesting fraction of our customers. And the only difference is uh, the customer is not coming in, coming in the store anymore, but over an online form, uh, uh, the customer is served um, via uh, DHL, Hermes, any parcel service. Um, we can do the same. Though I'm pretty sure you've heard this argument before. What's your answer? So honestly, like in the long term, yes, they can do the same, but it's not something that happens overnight. What powers this business model, the data that you have, and the way the algorithm is able to predict what a customer wants. That's not something that you can buy off the shelf. It takes time to build that kind of data set. And it takes also the experience and know-how and all the failings that we've had across building Mr. Draper to know what to look out for. So yes, they can do it, but I don't think it's something that they can do overnight. And then becomes a decision strategically as a retailer is do you build or buy, right? If this is a business model that they want, Mm -hmm. Do they want to invest in making all the mistakes and going through the ups and downs of this business model? Or would they rather just buy it off the shelf and have it ready and they just implement their products and services on top? Now, if you look at uh, one of specific retailers, I won't mention any names, they chose to do it in-house. Um, so they looked at our business model, they actually did a due diligence on our business model and then replicated it internally. Until this day, it's still lagging behind us in terms of market share. And it's been about three years now. So, I mean, it's a decision for every retailer to take themselves, but I think if if the leadership at the top has digital experience or um, a tech background, they would know that this is a build versus buy decision and how much they're willing to invest. And in most cases, it makes more sense to buy this off the shelf from as a startup or uh, another business offering something similar than building it themselves. How do you prioritize um, features and functions? Because I believe there, with with the thousands of customers that we have, there are like super customers, maybe buying every month, and they were requesting extra services. Like, uh, I would like have my personal stylist coming to me at home, or uh, please don't send me a box with six items. I want to have like the whole assortment, two hundred items at my house party uh, tomorrow, and I will buy even uh, even more. And I, I guess there's like even more features and requests i cannot even think about um but so it's like it's always easy to focus on this kind of things like customers are wanting whereas it's not like serving um a purpose like for the rest of the customers how do you prioritize that's a really good question something i have to think about but i mean really what we try to do is 
we try to build things that are just going to make our customers' experience as great as possible and, and in line with what they want. But at the same time, it has to make business sense. And a lot of the things they've actually said that they've requested, right? So um, one, in one specific case, they did want customers, uh, stylists to come to their house and do the styling. Um, and they were willing to pay for it. But for us, like just logistically, that didn't make sense. So what, what we'd like to do is if we continuously hear the same type of feedback, instead of going all out and building something, we build an MVP of it. So at one point, a customer wanted, like you said, to work with a stylist one-on-one. And we kept hearing that over and over, like, I want to meet my stylist. I want her to come with me, et cetera. So what we did actually is we built a pop-up inside a suite of a hotel. We moved a fraction of our best-selling inventory into this pop-up. And we invited our customers to come in and work with their stylist one-on-one using our inventory in this pop-up. We did this pop-up for a month. Um, and it was actually a very interesting case where um, it became more of a platform than a, than a shop in the, in the sense that customers were coming to do the styling session for the first time, interacting with our service and getting to know us and then transitioning to the box. We had customers that have been longtime customers that were coming in, working with the stylist, spending double what they would spend on their boxes. And then it became a platform where customers were actually returning the box to the pop-up that we had sent them. So instead of them waiting for somebody to come pick it up, they were coming and dropping it off for us. And then we were sending it to the warehouse. And in a lot of cases, we would send the customer the box. He would get it. He would book an appointment, come see the stylist one-on-one. And then work with her through the box, try things on and say, okay, like what actually looks good on me from this box and what can I add to it? So he would buy stuff from the box and then he'd buy stuff from the appointment itself. So it's kind of like an omni-channel styling solution that we want to build on top of. So when I hear omni-channel, I usually um, get goosebumps because... (laughs) Omnichannel frightens me because of the complexity. Um, there was like one guy in, in Germany who was telling about his multi-channel um, experience from a CIO perspective and said, okay, 80% of the resources uh, we had, developer resources, money resources, went into this kind of omnichannel cases. We have like an online order and an offline click and collect, whatever uh, thing, but only 5% of the customers really used it. So it's, it's kind of really... It's, it's, it's a strange thing. There's a business behind it. Yeah, but it's like, it's so complicated to manage. So uh, even the return process, it's not so easy because then it comes to the store or to the pop-up store in the hotel. Then you have to collect it. Then the customer might expect like immediate payout instead of like a deferred payout later when he's doing it online. You have the expert at your warehouses that are usually taking back the um, the inventory, checking if it's the right inventory, the right things to do. But it's like um, it's really not omnichannel on scale. It's it's really consuming a lot of resources. Um, and when when we see customers talking about it, then we say, okay, there must be very good reason not focusing on pure online experience anymore, custom acquisitions, more features, whatever, before you're stepping in this omnichannel uh, case. Yeah, just one remark. <laughs> no, I mean, it's an interesting thought. And to be honest, look, uh, and it's very interesting. I mean, I, I honestly, offline, I'd love to talk about this further and understand it a bit more. Um, I'm actually, funny enough, I'm doing a talk later today talking about how to leverage data and technology to personalize a shopping experience. And I'm doing Who's it. Who's moderating it, Lina? No, it's just a talk. A right? talk There's no okay. moderation. I'm, I'm just getting out there and talking for 20 minutes, okay. which I haven't done before. And I've built this framework 
that I've pieced together from a lot of the research that I've done. I spent a lot of time like preparing for this talk because I wanted it to be good. But at the end of the day, like I really don't understand what these retailers go through as they're making these decisions. And I'm actually having a few conversations prior to talk to make sure I'm thinking yeah. along the same lines. I would like to understand those challenges. Now, when we did this pop-up and built this experience, it was very seamless, to be honest, because everything is centralized for us, our inventory, our CRM, our warehousing. We built all this from scratch. So like you said, if the customer returned the box to the pop-up and we send it back to the warehouse, when the warehouse gets it, all they see is, okay, we got a box back. And they scan it back and their system calculates what we sent to the customer and what was returned. Um, and then it automatically calculates what he should be charged for. If the customer bought anything additional from the pop-up and it's the same customer, we just created a new order for him and called it an offline order. Like we built a system around it. Have we done it at scale? No. Um, but I don't know if we would have the same challenges because in, in, our, in our view, and which is very limited to what we've done, um, we would keep inventory centralized um, and we would have services running off that inventory. And we are making the decision on the buying process, the product, the customer is not choosing anything for himself. So we wouldn't have that problem of missing inventory as a customer is placing an order. That makes sense. It totally makes sense. If you were free to choose and money is not uh, not a limitation, uh, what is your biggest bottleneck you would solve? Is it like um, the amount of uh, inventory 200 other brands? Is it customer acquisition? Uh, is it your maybe own delivery fleet uh, with stylists driving around the trucks uh, going to the customer? So what would, what would uh, fuel your growth? So right now at this specific stage, right? We're still relatively early. Um, a lot of the growth would be, uh, a lot of the money would be spent on growing the Saudi market. But what we want to do is two things. We want to start experimenting on the B2B side, go to market with our products, um, our tech products, and see um, what challenges retailers are having and how our tech can solve that. At the same time, as I was mentioning earlier, we like to build services in conjunction with retailers and mall operators. We see with our technologies, a lot of opportunities for us to, bl to blend on and offline experiences through what we do. And I'll give you one particular example. Uh, of something that we're thinking about and have signed an NDA to do a proof of concept. Again, um, a lot of families owns malls. They own malls and they own the brands inside the malls. It's a very unique relationship. So what we'd like to do is leverage offline inventory for our service and in return, share data with the mall operators about what's working and what isn't. So let's say we walk into a mall. We build out a small operational center inside that mall. What we're able to do with what we've built is basically look at the offline inventory inside that mall, use it to curate our boxes, send it to our customers, deliver the Mr. Draper experience, have it come back and redistributed to the brands inside the malls. So um, in return, what's happening is like we built all these dashboards that the guys are seeing what's going in, what's going out. At the same time, we're giving them demographic data. Okay, a male between these ages from this nationality, Uh, with this type of style profile has said these things about your products. So for us, it's like scaling mall operations through technology. It, for them, it's understanding who their customers are and how their products are being received by the by the customers. And it's, it's us working in conjunction to digitize the mall asset. In the long term, the strategy there could be as a mall operator, you can reduce rent for your retailers, 
you can instead make the structure of your rent to be more commission based off revenue and to optimize for like a win-win situation between the mall operator and the retailer to optimize you provide these types of services for your retailers for your offline tenants to drive revenue from their shop and that's just one example and there's a few that we can play with that's a long-winded answer but it's more i guess like the long and short of it is we want to experiment more leveraging technology to digitize the apparel shopping experience Okay, then maybe let's go a bit like to uh, to the uh, present again, and that's going to be the last question for the podcast. So, if you're going to sit here again in uh, Riyadh, seamless Riyadh, I hope it's going to be later in the year next year. It's really hot outside. <laughs> uh, if you're going to sit here again uh, next year, where will Mr. Draper be? Next year, yeah. So we will probably be in two markets in Saudi. Um, we'd have five private label brands and a relationship with a mall operator to run our services offline. That's a very precise answer. Uh, it's we, built into we our guys, business model. That's a, that's a, <laughs> so we got to get it right. Uh, yeah, that's a, you know, the, we can measure you on the outcome uh, <laughs> here. Yeah, that's yeah, very very insightful. Mahmoud, thank you thank for you. being on the Commerce Talks podcast. 